Chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved a love song about his vineyard. Now, Isaiah uses imagery from about every aspect of ancient life and culture. And one of the things that happened anciently was that certain times of the year, like at times of harvest, here in this case, they were harvesting the grapes and pressing them in the wine press. And minstrels would come and sing songs or play musical instruments or flutes and they would play while the people pressed the grapes and actually it became a dance. The grapes were pressed in the depression in the earth that was flat and they threw the grapes in there and several people would kind of go around and around and dance. Just like today, we do that on the trampoline. They would just jump up and down on these grapes and squeeze the juice out of them which would flow down a slight incline into a lower vat. And there they'd scoop it out and strain it, and that would become the wine. So at certain times of the year, people went around, knowing that, they went around and assisted in these things, and minstrels would go along, and they were in high demand at that time. And so he uses that kind of imagery. For my beloved, in other words, it's a love song as well. It kind of has a double connotation here. Now my beloved is the Lord himself. He's the one that's referred to here. And the Lord himself, in that sense, is an exemplar for those of his servants who are beloved. For example, he calls Abraham beloved. Beloved also means one who keeps covenant. To love has a particular covenant definition. It's actually a technical term of covenant language, or covenant terminology. That means it refers to one who keeps covenant. The vassal loves the emperor or the suzerain when he keeps the terms of the covenant. When Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, that's almost lifted verbatim out of the ancient or eastern covenant idea. The keeping of the commandments are the law of the covenant. Keep the law of the covenant, then you love the emperor or the king or the one with whom you have a covenant. A love song about his vineyard. He himself is paralleled with his vineyard here, which means that he and his vineyard are inseparable, as it were. My beloved had a vineyard on the fertile brow of a hill. Another place where that word beloved is mentioned is in the ascension of Isaiah, where the Lord himself is called the beloved. Had a vineyard on the fertile brow of a hill. Well, the hill could be a nation or people of God, as it is a metaphor for that. And there's a fertile nation, the fertile brow of a hill. And so it's a choice land. He cultivated it, clearing it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. Like I said, there's precious stones, semi-precious, and common stones, and these are common stones. So clearing it of stones means what? Actually, literally, you know, getting rid of stones in a vineyard, but as an allegory as it is here, and as a lot of the book of Isaiah is, it's getting rid of the wicked. He planted with choice vines. He built a watchtower in its midst and hewed a wine press as well. The watchtower implies prophets, the watchmen upon the tower, as we'll see all through the book of Isaiah. We have good watchmen in the book of Isaiah, and we also have blind watchmen that don't hear and don't see. You have two kinds. The choice vines are, as it says here in chapter 5, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah his cherished grove, or his vines. So it's the people themselves we're talking about all the way through here. He hewed a winepress as well, the wine press is kind of the culmination of the whole process, isn't it? You grow the grapes and you press them and you get the wine. The wine is what you want. That's the end result. 
It also implies judgment. Later on in chapter 64, we'll see how the Lord treads the winepress alone. And it's a judgment scene there. So it is saying that we're looking for the fruit, and by a certain time, if you don't measure up, you know, then you come under condemnation. He says, expected it to yield grapes, but it produced wild grapes. These people, or this fruit, doesn't measure up. The Hebrew word for wild grapes is a single word that we don't have in English, bitushim, which means grapes or fruit, any fruit, really, that does not mature or that rots before it gets ripe. So we're talking about a people that don't fulfill the measure of their creation. They don't take hold of the opportunity. They've procrastinated the day of their salvation, or whatever way you want to express it. They're people who don't make it. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and you men of Judea, please judge between me and my vineyard. Judge for yourselves. You know, he doesn't have to judge. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? He did everything. He planted it, he cultivated it, and it was all okay in its beginning. But then what happened? Well, this is the part that deals with the wicked. When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it produce bewushim, or fruit that rots before it ripens? Let me now inform you what I will do to my vineyard. I will have its hedge removed and let it be burned. Like I said, the king of Assyria personifies the fire and the sword, and he does, he's the one that does the burning. He's the one that invades the promised land. The hedge means some kind of protection, and that's removed. Do we see that today, by any chance? I will have its wall broken through and let it be trampled. The wall is, again, the defense. The defenses are broken through. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where the enemy comes in and invades the promised land. That's in the cross-reference. The word trampled is a typical word link to the king of Assyria. Chapter 10, verse 6 says, I will commission him against the godless nation, appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, like I said, the thief in the night, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. He treads the Lord's people underfoot. He tramples them down. Here in chapter 28, many other places. I will make it a desolation, verse 6. That is the vineyard. It will become desolate. It shall neither be pruned nor hoed, so there will be no ministry there anymore. The Lord will not be there ministering in the vineyard like he has hitherto. But briars and thorns shall overgrow it. In Isaiah, briars and thorns are the wicked. Or it signifies wickedness in general. Wickedness has taken over, but the wicked also have taken it over. They've overrun it, overgrown it. Moreover, I will forbid the rain clouds to rain on it. So no covenant blessings for them because rain clouds means that the Lord is blessing his people. Here and in other places in Isaiah, he blesses them with rain to make their land fertile. Remember that singular verse that we saw earlier that said, Tell the righteous it shall be well with them, they shall eat the fruits of their labors right in the midst of all that gloom and doom? Well, this chapter 2, as bad as it gets, has a verse like that in verse 17. Then shall his sheep feed in their pasture, and proselytes eat in the ruins of the affluent. And goes right on with the woes again after that. So remember that. It's not a general condition. In fact, in Isaiah's scenario, the righteous are taken out in the Exodus before the destruction comes, like Lot being taken out of Sodom before the destruction comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah. 
on the eve of the Holocaust, they exit out. For the wicked, this is how it will be, the ones who remain. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah, his cherished grove. There was his covenant people. He expected justice, but there was injustice. He expected righteousness, but there was an outcry. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of all good, as I mentioned, or covenant blessings. Now the opposite. Actually, in Hebrew, there's a word play here. It doesn't come through very well in the English. But you get the idea. There should have been justice and righteousness, and there once was. Remember the city? Righteousness made its abode in her. She was filled with justice, but now murderers. Chapter 1, verse 21. These people were the people of God. Like I said, in the end time, the situation is reversed. The people of God who apostatize are those who are now the covenant people. And they are subject to these judgments. The people who were the covenant people anciently, who were cut off then and who incurred God's judgments back then, they are now the ones that are received back. You'll see that scenario in Isaiah. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house and link field to field till no place is left. And you are restricted to dwell in the centers of the land. Here we have a series of about seven woes that are pronounced upon the people or covenant curses pronounced upon them. For what? Well, maybe for speculation, right? Joining house to house, linking field to field. How do they do that? Building townhouses, mergers, zoning laws, condos. There are different ways you can do this. Till you are restricted to dwell in the centers of the land. The centers of the land are the cities. There's no place left out there. Where? Out in the fields or out in the rural areas. Why? Because zoning laws says you have to have 20 acres here or 10 acres there or 5 acres minimum or whatever it may be, and you can't afford that. So what do you do? You live in the city. So the rich can get by, but the poor, can they? Remember, who are the poor? The Lord's people. He watches out for the poor. He's pronouncing a woe on those who do this speculative kind of stuff. Because in so doing, they get richer and the poor get poorer. So it's an injustice, it's an inequality that prevails here. And so those who are the cause of that inequality, he singles out for a covenant curse. Whether they do it by zoning or by speculative endeavors or business or mergers or whatever it may be. The Lord of hosts spoke this in my hearing, Surely many buildings shall lie desolate, large and fine houses unoccupied. Large and fine houses of the the rich, right? The ones who can afford to live in such places. The desolation is part of the destruction that the Assyrians wreak upon the Lord's people. And large and fine houses unoccupied means that its inhabitants will be destroyed or exiled or scattered, mostly destroyed. A ten-acre vineyard shall yield but one bath, a homer of seed but an ephah. So actually the land will yield less in that day than the seed you put into it. In other words, a situation of famine or drought, which is a covenant curse. Invasion by enemies is a covenant curse. Burning of houses is a covenant curse. Desolation. All these are covenant curses. 
Woe to those who go after liquor as soon as they arise in the morning, who linger at night parties inflamed by wine. In other words, alcoholics who are dependent on alcohol they have a dependency. They have to have it first thing in the morning. They're also party animals. These things are literal. The context here all the way through is very literal. These are just spelling out some of the sins of the people. There is more ways to sin than you can say, but here's a few samples. This is not everything, but here are some things that are going on. There are harps and lyres, drums, flutes, and wine at their banquets. Like I said, they're party animals. They're having a good time, kind of like the sons and daughters of Job. Then Job would offer sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, on behalf of those children of his who were partying. But they regard not what the Lord does, nor perceive his hands at work. So it's a form of idolatry. It takes them away from God, from the things of God. They don't know what the Lord is all about, what he's doing. What are his hands at work? In the book of Isaiah, the Lord has two hands, the left hand and the right hand. The left hand is the king of Assyria, the hand of punishment with which the Lord smites his people. The right hand is the hand of deliverance, through whom he saves his people, the Lord's servant. Yeah. And we'll see that later on, where those terms are identified specifically with those two individuals. While they don't perceive these things, the king of Assyria comes along, do they perceive what he's going to do? Did people perceive what Hitler was going to do a few years before the Second World War? Probably not. Do they perceive uh, the servant for whom he is? They're out of touch spiritually. All idolaters in the book of Isaiah are inflicted with blindness, spiritual blindness. Therefore my people are taken captive for want of knowledge. My people is the covenant people. We're not talking about somebody else. We can't point the finger. Are taken captive, that is a covenant curse, for want of knowledge. Knowledge or to know, like I said, is a covenant term. If they kept covenant with the Lord, they would know him face to face. And they would know all about everything. All that they needed to know. They would have the spirit of a revelation individually. They would have revelation in the word of God through the servant or through the prophet. They would have plenty of knowledge of what's going on or what they needed to do. If they're taken captive, it's because they did not magnify or fulfill their covenant relationship. They did not keep the terms of the covenant that qualified them for that kind of knowledge. Their best men die of famine. Their masses perish with thirst. Now, like I said, the whole society, except a few that go in the Exodus, the tithing of the people, as we'll see in chapter 6. The famine and thirst, again, this is lack of bread, lack of water, which is a covenant curse, afflicts everybody. The elite and the masses, as we'll see in other places. Verse 14, Sheol becomes ravenous. Sheol is the underworld, or the spirit prison, or hell. In other words, they perish. They die. Opening her mouth insatiably. Into it descend their elite with the masses, their boisterous ones and revelers. All the party animals will end up down there. They can party down there if they want. 
This is, I guess, where the idea of the gates of hell comes from. It's the underworld. Now, the word mouth is also a metaphor of the Lord's servant, but not in this case. In this case, it is of the king of Assyria. He's also a mouth. The book of Daniel calls the king of the north a mouth speaking great things against the Lord and against the Most High. He is a mouth. He's the mouth of the wicked, mouthing off against God and against God's people. Just like Hitler was mouthing off against the Jews and against God's people. So that's another level in which we can read this. We can read it literally as people going to their death, or we can talk about this being a person who is spouting his propaganda against the people of God and against God himself. Chapter 37, verse 23, for example, says, Whom have you mocked and ridiculed? Against whom have you raised your voice, lifting your eyes to a high heaven? Against the Holy One of Israel, by your servants you have blasphemed the Lord. He stirred up against the Lord. It talks about his snortings and his bellowings. That's the king of Assyria. Verse 15, mankind is brought low when men debase themselves. The same idea as we had earlier in chapter 2, verse 9. Mankind is brought low when men thus debase themselves, causing the eyes of the high-minded to be downcast. Because the high-minded are people whose minds are pure, whose thoughts are on elevated things. And when they see these debasing kinds of things, on these horrible corruptions of society, you could hardly stand them. Verse 16, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted by a just judgment. The holy God show himself holy by his righteousness. What does that mean? The Lord is exalted when he delivers his people. As he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, that was an act that exalted him. His people praised him for that. They thanked him. They sang songs of salvation. He became well-known among the nations of the ancient Near East as the God of Israel, who did those miracles for his people. That's how God is exalted, and so he's going to be exalted now by bringing on a just judgment, as he did then upon the Egyptians. So he's going to bring a just judgment upon the wicked at this time. If he's a just God, then he has to intervene to deliver the righteous from the wicked because he's not going to allow that situation to prevail forever. That would be unfair. There is a protection clause in his covenant with his people. When the wicked threaten the righteous, then he intervenes, just as he did in Egypt. The holy God show himself holy, because he's an exemplar of holiness. It is the holy who are the elect, the ones who survive the destruction. How does he show himself holy by his righteousness? He's also the exemplar of righteousness. But righteousness is also a metaphor describing the Lord's servant who exemplifies righteousness. He personifies righteousness. He's a model for, of righteousness for people in that particular day with its peculiar challenges. So when the Lord raises up righteousness from the East in chapter 41 verse 2, and the Lord's servant commences his mission, that's how God shows himself holy. It shows that God is now intervening in the affairs of people, just as he intervened in the affairs of his people in Egypt, when he raised up Moses to deliver them. The wicked, in other words, go to 
a judgment that is just, without mercy, and the righteous are also judged at that time with mercy, because they are delivered by the Lord's servant out of the destruction. That is how they are delivered. Chapter 1, verse 27 says, Zion shall be ransomed by justice, those of her who repent by righteousness. Because of their righteousness and justice, they survived. They were ransomed by righteousness, the person as well. And that's what he does here. Then shall his sheep feed in their pasture, and proselytes eat in the ruins of the affluent. So even though that judgment is harsh upon the wicked, and destroys them, in fact, for the righteous, there will be deliverance. And this is a very peaceful scene, isn't it? A sheep feeding in their pasture. What more peaceful scene is there than that? Do you know of one? The sheep feeding in the pasture, you know, it's used by artists. It is so beautiful. And that's the scene. Amidst all of that worldwide destruction, there is this beautiful pastoral scene. That's what Isaiah is saying. It would be so different for the elect. And proselytes eat in the ruins of the affluent, meaning the houses that were left desolate, in chapter 5, verse 9, and other ruins that they rebuild. They rebuild the ruins later on in the book of Isaiah. The one servant and those whom he ministers to, they rebuild the ancient ruins. They re-inherit those places of which the wicked were dispossessed. Verse 18, Woe to those drawn to sin by vain attachments, hitched to transgression like a trailer. I always identify these people with the camper culture that's out there. They make that into a religion, spending their Sabbath days out there, hitched to transgression like a trailer. They carry their trailers behind them. (laughs) But maybe that's too limited. Vain attachments. So, you know, like a fetish or some other form of idolatry that keeps you occupied or preoccupied with it instead of with the things of God, instead of with serving people. You've got your little hobby and your little thing that you do, and that's your thing. It's taken you away. It's uh, taken you away from reality. Who think, let him quickly speed up his work so we may see it. In other words, show me a sign. Or, if this is really going to happen, if we're really going to get the second coming, well, come on, let it happen then. Let him quickly speed up his work so we may see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel soon come to pass and we will know. Prove it, they say. Show us a sign. Obviously, they're unbelievers and they're giving the believers a hard time. Woe to those who suppose what is evil to be good, and what is good evil. And good and evil, like I mentioned earlier, these are covenant terms. So, what is evil is covenant breaking, and they suppose that to be good. They're breaking the laws of God, all the ways you can do that. And what is good, which is covenant keeping, or loyalty to the covenant with the Lord, they suppose to be evil. They kind of have their values turned upside down, but they don't know it. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. And like I said, we've talked about the light of the gospel. The Lord's law and precepts are a light to the nations. So we could say that they think that that is darkness. That's darkness to them. 
and what is darkness to us, that's their light. So again, a different standard of values, all turned around. But it seems to be more deliberate here, isn't it? It seems like a more of a choice rather than just happenstance. Light and darkness are also metaphors for the Lord's servant and for the king of Assyria, or for the Lord himself who is the light. The king of Assyria personifies darkness, and not just him, but his philosophies as well. He has a false philosophy or ideology that he promotes. Some people accept that ideology and that person, and that's to them those things are good and light. The Lord's servant is a light. So some, in effect, would be rejecting the true Messiah or the temporal Messiah and saying that he is the Messiah, the Antichrist. And I guess that's why he would be called the Antichrist in the scriptures because he is the opposite of what Christ is. This would be like some choosing Satan before Christ himself. They make bitterness sweet and the sweet bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own view. And that verse is probably no accident that it follows verse 20, where people's values are overturned. And alludes to pride, doesn't it? Later on we'll see how the wisdom and the learning of the wise and the prideful gets overturned. Now is they're into some kind of conceit, they have a, a conceited mindset, and no doubt they let that be felt and known around them and subject other people to that. Woe to those who are valiant at drinking wine and champions at mixing liquor. They should be valiant in covenant keeping. Like I said, the Lord himself is called the valiant one of Israel. And there are those who are valiant that are mentioned in the book of Isaiah. But these are not valiant in that sense at all, but in the opposite sense drinking wine and champions at mixing liquor. Champions, usually in this milieu, alludes to war heroes, people who are great, who are champions at fighting wars or defending their nation. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Alluding to judges for gifts or rewards or whatever you want to call them. Well, don't pass proper sentence. As a blazing fire consumes stubble, as dry weeds wane before the flame, so shall their roots decay away and their blossoms fly up like dust. So they're all burnt up in the fire. Again, Sodom and Gomorrah type of fire. It identifies them as dry weeds. Weeds, in this derogatory sense, are non-productive. They're a nuisance. It's something that you weed out. Here, people are likened to these weeds, people that are like weeds that are weeded out. You have to weed them out, throw them on the fire. The roots and the blossoms, on the other hand, has an even deeper connotation, because roots has the connotation of ancestry, and blossoms has the connotation of descendants. So these are left without ancestry that they can claim their own, or without descendants, which is a covenant curse whereas the elect have roots and blossoms, right? And fruit. They have ancestors, they have descendants, offspring. Decay, another term we saw earlier, or rot, 
and dust, those are chaos motifs. So they go back to their elemental state to becoming a non-entity or non-entities. They're reduced to the dust. And then by way of summing up or giving reason, for they have despised the law of the Lord of hosts and reviled the words of the Holy One of Israel. So there's no justice and no righteousness there. The law of the Lord of hosts and the words of the Holy One of Israel spell out the terms of the covenant, and they have not kept covenant. They've not only despised it, but reviled against it. So they've made themselves enemies of the Lord and His covenant. Who would they revile against if not those who are keeping the terms of the covenant, right? They don't just sit in the corner at home reviling against God, do they? How do they revile against it? Somebody tries to help them, then they revile. And so they subject those people to persecution. That's how they revile. Verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. He draws back his hand against them and strikes them. The mountains quake and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. On a literal level, the Lord is angry with his people, yes. But he's not an angry, vengeful God. That's not his nature. We think when we read the Old Testament that the God of the Old Testament is this vengeful, angry God who's always wanting to smite and punish people. Is that true? He did a lot of that in the Old Testament. But that was because the people kept aborting their destiny. They kind of kept forfeiting their calling. They kept breaking the covenant and getting themselves into a big messes. Only occasionally they did not. Under the rule of King David, they did not. King Hezekiah, there are a few instances when they did not and when things went well for them. But God is not an angry God. He's a long-suffering and loving God. Then why does it say the anger of the Lord of hosts is kindled against his people? Is there righteous anger? When Christ cleansed the temple in Jerusalem and cast out the money changers who were buying and selling there within the courts of the temple, was that righteous indignation? It was. There was room for that. But the word anger is also another metaphor, a pseudonym of the king of Assyria, who personifies God's anger. Chapter 10, verse 5 says, Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. He is a staff, my wrath in their hand. He personifies God's anger and wrath. So when it says, The anger of the Lord is kindled against his people, that is, against his wicked people, it means that the king of Assyria is all stirred up against them on that metaphorical level. He's all head up. It is literal. It is always literal first. But on a metaphorical level, there's that connotation. And you'll always see that, and you've always seen it throughout history, that the enemies of the Lord's people are some of the most virulent types the earth has ever seen. And Hitler is a good example. He was always mouthing off. He was always angry. Those great speeches where everybody said those things, you know, and saluted him and all of that. Do you notice the venom in that person? And you'll see that again with this modern king of Assyria, whoever he is. You'll see that will be a constant trait of his all the way through his speeches and through his actions. It will be this anger, this venom against God and his people. 
He draws back his hand against them and strikes them. That is, the Lord does. He draws back his hand, the king of Assyria, the left hand of punishment. The king of Assyria is an instrument in the Lord's hand, or is the Lord's hand, to punish the wicked. He is the wicked, destroying the wicked, or punishing the wicked. The mountains quake and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. Yes, there will be mountainous quakes or earthquakes that will cause death. But also mountains is a metaphor for nations, as we will see. In chapter 13, for example, in chapter 64, it's a synonymous parallel with nations. So we can say that the nations quake and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. Litter is like refuse. It's a chaos motif. But the people are reduced to chaos by the king of Assyria. In chapter 14, talking about the king of Assyria, or rather the king of Babylon, which is the same individual, the king of Babylon is a religious title that Assyrian kings or conquerors of Babylon anciently applied to themselves. It says in verse 16, chapter 14, verse 16, Is this the man who made the earth shake and kingdoms quake? who turned the world into a wilderness, demolishing its cities. That's what he does. And those are word links to him. Anger, the hand, the quaking of the mountains. Those are all word links to the king of Assyria. In other words, he causes mass destruction. Yet for all this, his anger is not abated. His hand is upraised still. There's that refrain that I talked about that we see here in chapter 9 and 10. The anger of the Lord of hosts is the king of Assyria. And it's not abated all at once. The king of Assyria does his work, and it doesn't happen just overnight. It's enduring until the work is done. Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. He's a staff, my wrath in their hand. Chapter 10, verse 6 again. Hand and anger here are in a parallel, in a synonymous type of parallel. His hand is upraised till ready to smite a second time, a third time, a fourth time. Verse 26, He raises an ensign to distant nations and summons them from beyond the horizon. Here, the raising of the ensign is parallel with the raising of the hand at the end of verse 25. Both are raised because he is also the ensign. He is the ensign that rallies an alliance of wicked nations from beyond the horizon to assist him in conquering the world. We see that also in chapter 13. Raise the ensign on a barren mountain, sound the voice among them, chapter 13, verse 2. Beckon them with the hand to advance into the precincts of the elite. And then verse 4 talks about the vast multitude of nations assembling. The Lord of hosts is marshalling an army for war. They come from a distant land beyond the horizon, the Lord and the instruments of his wrath to cause destruction throughout the earth lament for the day of the Lord is near. So those are word links, the ensign to distant nations. That's the king of Assyria. The Lord raises him and he serves as an ensign to rally them into this one big alliance that will do this work of destruction. He summons them from beyond the horizon. Anciently, those were always the Assyrians or the Babylonians that came from Mesopotamia into the promised land to do this kind of destruction, the Assyrian and the Babylonian conquerors. In the latter-day context, it will still be found beyond the horizon, wherever that may be. Forthwith they come swiftly and speedily. So once they get their act together, 
happens quickly. But it's a prolonged destruction, as we'll see. Not one of them grows weary, nor does any stumble. They do not drowse or fall asleep. Their waist belts come not loose, nor their sandal thongs undone. Why does it say all these negative things? They don't do this, they don't do that. Because when we analyze each of these terms, or each of these descriptions, we see that Israel grows weary, Israel stumbles, Israel drowses and falls asleep, Israel's waist belt is loose and their sandal thongs undone. So this disciplined army comes at a time when the Lord's people are undisciplined. When the Lord's people have fallen asleep and are in a state of corruption. And so they should be easy game for any invaders. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are strung, the tread of their war horses resembles flint, their chariot wheels revolve like a whirlwind. A very powerful army of people. Not a friendly proposition at all. This has a very negative connotation all the way through here. All through this chapter, in fact. They have the roar of a lion. They are aroused like young lions. Growling, they seize the prey and escape, and none comes to the rescue. Like no one puts out the fire. Same idea. To be consumed by wild animals is a covenant curse, and that's the connotation here. The connotation of covenant curse is all the way through here. To be invaded by enemies. From beyond the horizon, from Mesopotamia anciently. They were a militaristic world power from the north that came in and invaded the promised land. Anciently, and they will be today. And while they are so militaristic, the Lord's people will be in a state of corruption, half asleep. The righteous actually go out in an exodus. These are not the elect that will be suffering these things. He shall be stirred up against them in that day. And that day is the day of judgment. Stirred up, again, identifies the king of Assyria. It's a word link to the king of Assyria. In chapter 37, for example, verse 28, it says, I know where you dwell and your comings and goings and how stirred up you are against me. The Lord addressing the king of Assyria there directly. He is stirred up to anger against the Lord and against his people. Even as the sea is stirred up. The book of Isaiah calls him by the name Sea and River which were ancient and recent powers of chaos in the Canaanite myth of Baal and Anat. Sea and river were the two names of a power of chaos or a false god. The sea in commotion or the river in flood. All the way through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah identifies flood imagery with the king of Assyria. He's the new flood that floods over the earth. His armies as they conquer the earth are like a new flood that flood over everything and destroyed by fire and by the sword. The new flood, in other words, is a flood of fire that the king of Assyria launches. And should one look to the land, there too shall be a distressing gloom, for the daylight shall be darkened by an overhanging mist. So people trying to escape from this king of Assyria, who's so stirred up against the Lord's people, if you don't go in the Exodus, you'll try to run from the cities, to escape destruction of the cities to the countryside? Will that work? Perhaps. But there too will be calamity. This is very similar. This last part of chapter 5 is very similar to the last part of chapter 8. 
says they will look to the land, chapter 8, verse 22, but there shall be a depressing scene of anguish and gloom, and thus they are banished into outer darkness. These are the equivalent of the five foolish virgins, in other words. They were the people of God. The five wise were preserved by the Lord's intervention, but the five foolish remained in outer darkness, where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that is a covenant curse for these individuals. They will survive, otherwise it wouldn't call them virgins. They were just people that were not valiant, not the elect. That they will have to live through that time of distressing gloom and darkness that the king of Assyria causes. He personifies darkness. If he caused that kind of worldwide destruction, there would be a pall of darkness over the whole earth, and the sun and moon and stars would not be visible, as it says in Isaiah chapter 13. It says, uh, The stars and constellations of the heavens will not shine. When the sun rises, it shall be obscured, nor will the moon give its light. Chapter 13, verse 10. 